Welcome to the Effective Data Scientist Podcast. The podcast is designed to help you improve your skills, stay focused, manage successful projects, and have fun at work. Be an effective data scientist now. Welcome to a great discussion that we'll have today about machine learning. Hi, Paolo. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Alexander. Very good. Hi, Serge. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Very delighted to have you as a guest on the show. So maybe um, before we dive a little bit deeper into the technical topics, can you introduce yourself to all those who have not heard about you and your book and and things like that before? Well, um, yeah, I've, um, I'm a data scientist in a large agri, agribusiness company. Um, we, what I do there a lot involves, uh, you know, predicting plant disease and plant growth and things like that. And, and the reason we do that is to enable the farmer to make better decisions in order mm-hmm. to uh, lead to more sustainable agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, in a way it's disrupting the, the very essence of uh, the way agriculture is done today, even by the company I work for. So it's like we're disrupting ourselves uh, through these methods. Uh, prior to working here, which is like uh, two and a half years ago, I worked in a 3D printer manufacturing company. And um, and what I did there was, uh, you know, kind of give them a, I was the first data scientist in that company. So kind of tried to lay some groundwork to what needed to be done um, to take it to the next level data-wise. Um, and before that, I was actually studying data science, um, but um, as uh, getting a master's in data science, but that precludes the fact that I've been working for data for over 10, 20 years. Uh, difference is uh, the roles before uh, I officially became a data scientist, uh, you know, were in the web space. So mm-hmm. data was always coming in. I was always analyzing data as the webmaster for a large um, uh, poker, online poker operation. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of data coming in and a lot of analysis. And uh, and my role there was trying to kind of connect the dots and, and kind of figure out what, what had to happen with the websites to um, improve operation and and, and uh, reduce uh, friction with sales and things like that. Um, okay. Yeah, so um, before that, you know, I, I did a lot of things in the web space, always always touching on, on uh, data. Um, I also was an entrepreneur. I had a startup um, also involving machine learning. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's been a long journey. <laughs> That's all I can say. When, when got you infected by the machine learning and data science bug? Oh, <laughs> it, it kind of, you know, it's like, you know, like you, you think you love something and, and there's something in the background 
you know, like it's it's like I got involved in the internet. I thought I loved the internet. That's what yeah. I love. No, mm -hmm. but the internet comes. The reason you love the internet is because it has all this information, right? Once you once you understand this information well enough, it it does. It's no longer it's, it's data, right? And um, I didn't realize that's that's what brought me to the to the internet. That's why I was interested. In it. I thought I was interested in building stuff on the internet. I thought I was interested in websites and and uh, you know mobile apps and all that stuff. But reality, the the building part of it stopped interesting me a long time ago. What kept me going was the data. You know, I was more interested of you know the data coming in than the data going out. You know. <laughs> Um, and, and, and I got obsessed with SEO and, and, you know, web marketing and, and, uh, AB tests for, you know, websites and all sorts of things on, 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 on more that end on the analytics end and, you know, on, um, on the actual building end. <laughs> so I, I, I guess I, I had fallen in love with data and I didn't realize it. <laughs> so it's it, it's like one of those stories, you know, like uh, you know, like there's um, you know, you 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 think you fell in love with one girl, but there's some other one that's always <laughs> there, and that's so that's, you started, that's the one that was for you, the girl next so, door, right? <laughs> so you started with uh, programming and then uh, diving uh, into the yes. data, while other people maybe uh, start with the data and then uh, dive into programming or stuff like that. So I, I always connected both. That's the strangest thing. I, I, I learned how to program when I was like eight. I had, you know, barely learned how to read and write and I was already programming. <laughs> but I mean, don't, I, it's not like I was programming, you know, whiz or anything. I was just doing the sort of simple thing you would do back then, you know, like, uh, you know, commands and, you know, it was, it was basic, um, yeah, Microsoft basic. Yep. Think of, yep. uh, you know, old school, like monochrome screen, just like doing silly things like, okay. Uh, Can't completely relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so, but I, I was already always interested once I got, involved in the programming more enough, I, I was interested in the data side of it because uh, around the same time I was learning about computers. Uh, my parents were also learning about computers, um, you know, think uh, late eighties, early nineties. And they're, um, uh, my, my mother is working with uh, databases and spreadsheets and, you know, she asked me for help with that sort of thing. And I'm like, oh, what's this? And I get interested in that stuff. Um, so I, I start making databases for like, let's maybe we have only like, I don't know, like a hundred, uh, you know, albums in the house, you know, yeah. with CDs and cassettes and whatnot. And I'm like, I'm gonna create a database for this so people can find it. And like, it's a ridiculous use case because it's not like, we have like a huge catalog, but I, I'm just trying to find reason to create databases. <laughs> and, and as for spreadsheets, yeah. like I start to use spreadsheets for like decisions I have to make. So I'll, I'll create a, you know, like, um, you know, what, what 
what classes do I want to enroll in high school next year? You know, and so I'll rank them by things. Oh, how much do you like this professor? You know, I add a coefficient, I multiply it. So it was kind of second nature to me. But for me, I, I kind of thought it was all about the tool and not the data. You know, yeah. to me, it was like, okay, okay I'm, I'm trying to work with the tool. So it kind of came, went hand in hand. But as I said, I, I didn't realize data was always there and data is what I loved. And programming and, and uh, databases and all that stuff was just tools to get the things done that I wanted to do with data. Awesome. That's a, so you really came from the application area. You needed to kind of make decisions. You needed to use the models. And um, it's very similar for me. Yeah. Also, I, I studied mathematics. Yeah. When um, I was always coming from what was the question that I need to solve here? Uh, what are kind of do I need to find kind of predictors for a disease or for, for a treatment or for an adverse event or anything like that? Um, and then I was thinking about what is the right, right tool to use. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think lots of people also think about, well, I absolutely want to use this new cool tool that I just, or methods that I just used about. So let's find a problem that kind of, might fit to it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so your book is very much about interpretability yeah and machine learning what does that actually mean okay um okay there's interpretability and explainability and it, it's kind of confusing to talk of both because there as as we're talking there's still uh, a debate not so much in industry because most people understand them to be the same thing in the same way people understand machine learning and ai to be more or less the same thing but uh, people do split hairs about these definitions um i've chosen a camp and in my camp interpretability is the ability to interpret anything through through any means as long as there's some level of truth to it um, and that includes what is called post hoc interpretability which is like interpretively interpreting something uh, you know that is a black box in nature you just have the inputs and the outputs and you're just there's a, a level of assumptions that are made but you're you're, you're making a connection between both so um, that is a totally valid interpretation method for me, post hoc interpretability. On, on the other hand, explainability to me, and this is what I, I, I the, the, the school of thought I've subscribed to, um, explainability tries to go deeper into that and you have to get into the guts of the machine, get under the black and ex understand exactly how it was made, which for black box models is pretty nearly impossible, mm -hmm. you know, given the level of, of parameters going on. So it's it's a very difficult machinery to try to unravel. So it's um, a more ambitious uh, task. Yes. To, to uh, 
So they're, they're precisely statisticians. It's mostly in the statisticians and, and some people in the ethical eye cap that have the definitions reversed. So they think, okay, explainability is what you do with black box models. Interpretability is what you can only do with um, white box models. Okay. And, 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 and one of the reasons I don't, I don't like that is just simply semantics. I think um, if you were trying to go with levels of confidence between both terms uh, to, to interpret something, you don't have to really understand you know, how it's made, whereas explainability you do. You know, explainability is like, to explain something, you really, really have to understand everything. You know, that's, that's my take on that. It's just, just a word and that's the way I relate it. Uh, one has far more gravitas than another. You mentioned black and white box. Yeah. That's an, these are other interesting terms. Is it kind of are all black box models uh, not uh, explainable and all white box models are explainable? So it's, it's kind no. of the same? No, I, th I think there's, there's a lot of gray area there. I think okay. people, people talk of white box models like um, they're classes of models. Um, and if, if you have a linear regression model with, uh, I don't know, a hundred features, I got to tell you, that's, that's not explainable. You know, <laughs> there's no way. Um, and, and by the same token, if you have a, a decision tree, which in theory is fully explainable, um, and it has like 10 levels to it, yeah, you can't explain that. There's yeah. no way you can. To me, to be able to explain a machine, it, it has to be like um, the sort of thing that at a glance, you know, like on, on a very, uh, you can explain it, you can understand. It's like you can save the entire model in your head and you, you know exactly how it works. And if not, it, it, it doesn't make sense. If you have to really uh, <laughs> uh, look at all the interactions between all the different things and to kind of figure out how it all maps out, you, you can't explain it. I think, honestly. So that's my take on white box models. I don't think they're, they can't, you can say for sure that all classes of certain kind of models are fully explainable. Okay. Um, okay. And then uh, as for black box models, on the other hand, I think they have a bad rap. I think there's a lot of cases in which you can look under the hood. You can take a convolutional neural network And, 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 and get a pretty good idea of what's happening in, in every layer, in, in every node. You can do that. I mean, of course, it, it has to remain, you know, once it's like, a, a, same thing I said about a white box model. Once you're like dealing with, you know, 10 layers <laughs> um, <laughs> upon layers, you know, like a very, very, very deep uh, neural network. I mean, you know, you can no longer do that, I think. And, and, and truly say, oh, I understand it. I understand what everything's going on because it, it just becomes too complex. Uh, I, I was quite intrigued by another definition you, you have in your book, uh, which is glass box model. Yes. And yeah. uh, I never heard about it. Could yeah. Please uh, explain a little bit. Well, uh, That's a, that's a term, I, I don't know if it's trademarked by um, IBM um, or is it Microsoft? I think it's Microsoft. 
Yeah, I don't know if it's trademarked by them, but they, they created uh, what is called uh, EBM, Explainable Boosting Machines. And uh, they, they operate on something called GAMS, which is generalized additive models. And, and the way GAMS work, they, they, they just simply keep every feature um, separable because it's fully additive. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that property is a very desirable property because one of the things that makes uh, machine learning models so difficult to understand is how entangled every feature becomes with each other. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a, what, what is typically called in statistics, multicollinearity and, and uh, interaction effects and all that. It just becomes too messy. And so if you have a, a, a GAM of any form, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's highly interpretable no matter how, uh, how many features it has. Um, of course, I wouldn't say necessarily, of course, if you have like 100 features, it becomes less. But by the fact that you can separate every feature and measure their impact, um, that it, it becomes very desirable. So um, going back to the term glass box, Glass box has, it sits in the middle between white box and black box because of, of the fact that it can achieve uh, performance very near or like black box models can have. Because people keep using black box models, quote unquote, because for two reasons. One, because there's no other way to do what they want to do mm-hmm. with a white box model. And that's the case for... Uh, you know, convolutional neural networks. You know, you would never do uh, like an image classifier in, in a linear model or, or decision tree or anything like that. Uh, or because you you want to uh, achieve a, a performance, a predictive performance that you couldn't possibly achieve with a white box. Uh, of course, there's people that make that a rule and say, okay, I'm always going to go with a neural network because it's going to achieve the, or, or XGBoost or something. And that's not always the case either. So I, I, I have to state that, you know, it's not like black box always rule in that sense. But in cases when they tend to rule, people ought to learn about glass box models. Um, so there's more and more uh, research being done in that field, um, including uh, by Wells Fargo. And, and they have some amazing models that came out. And uh, yeah, I, I highly, they're all, the interesting thing about Classbox is that more, more often than not, it has, it has that GAM component. Um, so it's either a GAM component or a rule-based component. So, uh, which is very interesting uh, that you would take those two different um, properties and make them into models. Very, very good. Um, now, I have a follow-up question on the um, interpretability. So, um, you speak in your book about model agnostic methods for for um, uh, you know interpreting models. What is that? Model agnostic methods. Okay, well, yeah. you got model specific methods, mm-hmm. and and the model specific methods rely like on the intrinsic properties of a model. 
Mm -hmm. So intrinsic properties of a model are like getting into the guts of the machine and figure out what what kind of crazy math is going on inside, right? Um, that turns what's coming in into what's coming out, right? And uh, things of that nature, like uh, are like for a linear model, that would be uh, the intercept and the coefficients, yeah, right? Yeah. For 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 a decision tree, that would be the splits and all the way that's structured, all the different mm -hmm. nodes, you know, um, and and they're so on. I mean, there there's so many different ways to define the coefficients. For a neural network, for instance, that would be the bias and the coefficients, right? So uh, those are the intrinsic properties. So any model agnostic method will leverage those intrinsic properties. Uh, model, uh, no, model specific methods. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Model agnostic methods it's either doesn't have let's pretend there's no access to the model to those um, intrinsic properties or it uh, or it has access and just chooses to ignore it but the, the model analysis methods only need the input and the output sometimes not even the output but mo mostly the input so so it could be you if you kind of think about a classification problem, it could be all kind of different uh, models that lead to this kind of classification. Could be kind of uh, regression models, could be you know uh, other models, all kind of different things you could do. Uh, and these these model agnostic methods for interpretability would always work. Yeah, it doesn't matter because. They, they treat the model as a function. So mm. to them, the model is like any function. Okay. So uh, a lot of people don't think, it, like one of the oldest model agnostic methods is sensitivity analysis. It's been well known for you know decades now. You change um, your input uh, and, and you see uh, which kind of output uh, you, you yeah. have uh, changing yeah. the, the model, right? Okay. Yeah, so a lot of them work like that. Um, so the, the idea is you, you give it some, it, they work best when you give them an idea of what kind of inputs the model expects. So you, you, you at least have to tell them how many features, you know? but usually they expect like a sample or something. So you tell them this, this is more or less the distribution of the data that goes in and they, they permute that. Or you give them one example and they permute it. And by permuting it, it it's like adding noise to it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they add noise to it to figure out exactly how much is impacted in the, on the way out. And uh, that's how most of them work, but not all of them. Some of them have variations on that theme or, or they do something else. Uh, some of them are not entirely model agnostic. They, they're aided a little bit by the, by the, by the intrinsic parameters, uh, whether it's the structure of the model and so on. Um, uh, one of those libraries is called SHAP, and it has you know, so many variations on the same thing. They're, they're just uh, leveraging like a, 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 you know, a permutation method, and, and sometimes, depending on the model, can be guided by the intrinsic parameters. Very nice, because uh, in general, uh, you may think that uh, when you deal with uh, problems and you need uh, machine learning techniques, many people 
think that uh, you lose the interpretability. Yeah. While while reading your book, uh, it seems that uh, in many many cases uh, it's possible to interpret uh, your model. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. there are of course uh, exceptions, but uh, in many many cases uh, it's possible to deal with um, uh, machine learning uh, techniques and uh, having uh, the interpretability. So really really. Uh, an aha moment when you read the book uh, to have this kind of uh, uh, discovery. Uh, yeah, it's really yeah. Nice. yeah. When when I first well, even if if you do very very simple things like let's say you do a cluster analysis, yeah, and you want to understand kind of okay, um, with my current data set, I get you know looks like there are four clusters. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I take um, maybe, you know, just the females or just the males. Is it still four clusters? Or if I take just the older, just the younger, is it still four clusters? Um, you kind of get, get a sense for that. Yeah, there, there's so much you can do. Um, I One of the things that I find beautiful about using interpreting models is a fact that it, you can go deeper. Like a lot of people think, okay, well, I'm just gonna run feature importance and, and that's it. And so I'm gonna rank my, my features by how much they impact outcome. Mm -hmm. And that's really a shame. I mean, that's like the, probably the first thing you do, but you, you probably wanna also take it down a notch into the clusters, as you say, and see different segments and say, okay, these are the most important features for the for everybody, but what are they for the males versus what are they for the females? What are they for like uh, people that make income over this versus, you know, and then you start to see other patterns emerge. Um, and so it's, it's going down to that level and see if there's disparity that might figure out something about fairness, if there are problems with fairness, if there's inconsistencies that might lead to you think, well, Maybe this model is it won't generalize well. Maybe it's not very robust, or maybe it it won't do well under these circumstances. Uh, in the book, I have an example with traffic, and I, I say, okay, well, if it's a holiday, all bets are off. You should probably not use this model. It's a holiday, <laughs> right? Um, so you there's there's a lot of cases, and you and you wanna we, you should know these things about the model. You shouldn't go out to your client. Or your if if you work in the company dealing with these models to your stakeholders within the company and tell them oh you know use this model and and don't tell them much more you should put like caveats like asterisks and say oh well um, under these circumstances maybe not be careful with this um, it's not only for ethical reasons it's it's just good business practice I believe completely agree. Um... My so typical kind of uh, question for that in, in my math institute was always, what happens at the margins? <laughs> yeah. So, so if you go to the extremes, what, what happens there? You know, when will it break down? And so understanding these kind of things is, is really important. Um, as you talked about kind of ranking, what are the most important features? Um, I've seen so many reports where people say, well, 
um, age is a predictor and gender is a predictor and whatsoever. And you're left with, well, in which direction actually? Are now mm. men's worse off or, or females uh, worse off? And, you know, it's not included there. It's just the, the variable. Yeah. And then, of course, that kind of, yeah, leaves you, leaves you, yeah, it's important, but in which direction? <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. I think uh, that's why digging deeper beyond the, the general ranking, there's feature summary visualizations like partial dependence plots or, or you know, SHAP zone dependence plot, or you can also use uh, an AO plot. It's even better. Uh, and then you kind of start to see these these patterns. It's not just a question of this feature is important, but how, you know, is it is it like, say, for instance, income? Does it have a monotonic relationship with outcome? You know, or, you know, like I, I also have this example I, I present at conferences about um, about uh, a, a scholarship prediction problem. So you mm -hmm. want to you want to see who's worthy of a scholarship and uh, you have grades, the grades of the students. And you would think that the grades, you know, high grades correlate with uh, getting a scholarship or not. Right. So you 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 want to see that in the data. And if you don't, you want to ask why. Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe you even want to make sure that this monotonic relationship is withheld in the model. Because even if you have uh, not a lot of people with very low scores or exceeding like high scores, you want to maintain that relationship uh, no matter what the model gets. Because um, like outliers will happen in production, you know, once your model's out there and, and, and you want these relationships to continue regardless of what it gets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so that's kind of built-in interpretability. Uh, so yes. Yeah. yeah, that's the giving, flip side. Uh, yeah. uh, you're giving constraints to, to your model uh, in order to make it uh, interpretable, right? Yeah, so yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's, you can do that. You can add constraints to the model to make it more interpretable or make it more fair. Um, there, there, there are other, a lot of people, when, when it comes to fairness, they look at just the outcome, but there's, there's also, uh, that's a kind of fairness looking at the outcome, but you can also, uh, there's like rules that people associate with fairness, you know, that have nothing to do with the outcome that have more to do. Okay. Well, this is the way it's built because that's what's fair. You know, it's fair that the people with the higher grades are more deserving of the, of the scholarship regardless of you know what the data says because maybe the data is sparse or maybe it's noisy or or maybe there was some other historical reason for it to be skewed in one way or another and biased so um there there's there's many reasons to do that but i i advocate like looking into that figure out what what things are monotonic or linear or or have some kind of pattern in the data and the model can find and we can improve, we can enforce, we can strengthen. I call that putting guardrails. Um, <laughs> yep, yep. Very nice metaphor. 
I love that you mentioned data visualization. That's also my kind of go-to area when I um, want to understand what's going on here. Um, yeah. uh, when I want to see kind of patterns, when I even want to kind of understand directions, um, how big impact uh, certain variables have or whether interactions and whether it's, you know, inconsistencies and all these kind of different things. Um, you mentioned a couple of different plots for, for that. Is there some kind of library or kind of, you know, um, example list or is it all described in your book and so let's, let's buy the book? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of libraries, um, more and more all the time. Uh, right now I'm, I'm writing the second edition and there's just so much I have to update. More libraries out there, very good libraries. Ones that I don't even want to mention necessarily in the book because they haven't, even though they're good, I don't know if they'll stay on because that's something that happens yeah. in this ever-evolving field. Uh, people have come to the expectations that, you know, the libraries they like, and whether in Python or R, are, are there and people are well-known. but they start from somewhere, you know, someone yeah. writes a library and if it takes off, uh, it starts getting a lot of, uh, you know, stars on GitHub and downloads and, and PIP and so on. And, uh, but sometimes you, you find a very, and especially in the space of, of XAI, you find a ton of libraries that are awesome, but for some reason they're not well-maintained. So like two or three years of, nobody touching them and you know uh it's it's sad really but i i can't as much as i like those libraries i can't feature them in the book because i don't know if they'll work you know I, a, a year or two from now yeah so yeah, that, that's uh, a problem uh, with the open source uh, which is great because you have a lot of uh, resources but uh, this resources uh, needs uh, you know, to be maintained and, uh, and uh, okay, there is a community, but uh, it's really a, an eye demanding uh, task. So it's really difficult to, and I know that uh, uh, right now we have, we have uh, some kind of uh, movement like the Tinyverse, for example, in R, in order to uh, work uh always with the basics instead of uh you know using the uh, most recent libraries uh trying to develop uh, using the basic stuff uh, of the language uh, i mean in order to keep the product uh, uh, sustainable in the long run because otherwise uh, uh you're not going to find the same library in two years working uh, in your package or uh, production environment so that yeah that's why I, I took on some of those things myself if you notice in the book i i wrote a library for it um at first it started just simply for loading the data sets that i wanted for it and then i started adding like all kinds of functions that did things that i do all the time uh, but I didn't want to have to copy and paste it in, in the book and have people like deal with all this additional code because they really do simple things mm -hmm. for visualization set. Like for instance, uh, uh, one that I do all the time is you have 
a confusion matrix. And, and, and people, something they don't realize is a confusion matrix, it's, it's just, just like another visualization, it's a starting point. You know, like you can do, you typically only see it in terms of, oh, this is the entire performance of the model. But you can break it down and compare it, confusion matrix between one group against another and see how the false positive rate or the true positive rate differentiate and things like that. So I started to make simple visualizations like that and put them in a function because no, no other library that I knew of would do that. I would have to do that manually. Um, so I didn't, I didn't want to make it complicated for the readers. So I, I, I threw that in there. And, and there's a lot of visualizations I did like that because it's so important. I think people think relate to visualization, to statistics, to just looking at the data. And, and they don't realize that you can do the very same visualizations to the model, to the model's outcome and kind of tie things together and then compare them and see, okay, this is what the, what the data has. This is the relationship seen in the data, the pattern seen in the data. And this is what the model captured from that. Yep. And, and ideally you kind of can have the same visual and it's more or less the same. Of course, it's not going to be exact, but you want to make sure that there, there's not, there, there, there's alignment there. Well, it's kind of one of the simple things. Yeah. If you start with a linear regression, you probably want to have a scatter plot where kind of the line goes through. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just to yeah. see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and of course, kind of uh, the more complex it gets, you know, the, 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 you still want to see kind of predicted and actual values somehow, somewhere. Yeah. And um, yeah, you can do that all kind of, you know, on all kind of, you know, different levels of aggregation. And, but it's always, you know, some kind of form of, uh, of data visualization. Yeah. Awesome. Very good. Paulo, do you have any, any final questions for, for our great guest today? I'm wondering uh, uh, what's coming next for the field. So what's coming next for machine learning uh, interpretability? What are the big uh, ideas, the future trends uh, we are expecting? I don't know, maybe the, uh, we are expecting uh, to have uh, no code or auto ML in the, in the field. I don't know. Well, I, I think it, you, you came up with a very valid point there. Um, I explained in my final chapter, I think a, a lot of things will happen in interpretability. We'll be coming up with better methods, but there has to be a cross-pollination between academia and industry as far as like what methods work, how do they work? There's some that are very good, but they're impractical because they're very slow. There's, there's a lot of things that need to coalesce in that sense. And there's also a lot of very valid hypotheses that haven't been tested at a grander scale, you know, that, that kind of are born out of academia and never reach wider audience in industry. Uh, things like, uh, you know, counterfactual analysis, causal models, and so on. I, I think there's a lot of things that can be done with those methods. Um, And then once you kind of connect them with, you know, other things that are intrinsic within like uh, certain industries, like 
you might want to do like take uh, use semantic segmentation where you take images and you kind of break them out into parts that mean something to the model and kind of build some kind of causal structure that explains it. You can do a lot of stuff like that. And there's people looking into that research. Um, I think in, in a few years, there'll be whole families of new methods to use in the field. But I think the thing that will accelerate the whole, um, every, everything um, in terms of interpretability into a wider audience uh, is gonna be, as you said, no code and low code. And the reason I think that kind of goes back to what I said of starting in web development. I think the, the phase I associate machine learning and AI right now is, is to me is one I relate to the growing pains we had in the late 90s where you know websites were horrible, they were unreliable, <laughs> uh, there were all these browser wars going on, there were still very poor standardization going on. And I think a lot of those things will, will is, is something will come out. There, there's gonna be standards that emerge for, for saving models, for saving model metadata, which I believe is really important for interpretability, um, and um, which will come with things like provenance for enforcing new standards, like uh, I think are pretty common sense, like uh, when should a model expire? I believe models should always expire, right? Um, or what what constitutes a high level of of, of confidence for a model? So mm -hmm. all models, I believe, should have come with uncertainty estimates. And I think um, and and one of the reasons I favor classification models is because I can always establish a threshold and I can say, well, if if you're fifty, you know, fifty point five percent. It's 50.5% probable that this is the class. Might as well not give this prediction out to a person. So I favor the idea of abstention, you know, uh, abstaining to make a prediction. Uh, models should be able to do that. I mean, it's not the model's job. I think it's like a, an API of some sort that lay, lays on top of it. But a lot of the structures that will become the future of AI haven't been built yet or are in the process of being built. There's, I could name you like uh, half a dozen of projects that are, 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 are currently doing like uh, no code AI solutions that include interpretability within it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's very promising because I, I see that's the, the, the future of, of, of this field. I, I actually am bothered by the idea that everything is so, um, uh, that's why I kind of connected back to the 90s, so ad hoc, so like artisanal. Uh, everybody's making like their own models, like with the code and copying, pasting things from, you know, God knows where. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so there's, there's not really um, a, a good foundation to moving forward. And I think mm -hmm. frameworks are emerging and people are using them more and more. People are using fast a API and all that. But what bothers me about these frameworks, whether they're AutoML or anything, is that they still lack the very important component, which is interpreting. And I think for better or worse, that is the case right now. But in the future, there'll be like once 
machine learning engineers and data scientists are not coding and cleaning data and doing all that all day, their hands will be free to actually interpret the models. I, I think businesses will start to realize the, the value that can be untapped by interpretation outweighs by far the expense of having someone do that. Um, and, and it's right now, all that expense is very much on the data end and that's where it should be because I think data-centric AI is definitely important. It's important to have clean data, to have uh, reliable data, to look into the data. That's always gonna be important. But interpretation on the modeling side is not something that's done. And the reason is, you know, there's so much spent on, on getting everything, you know, through the pipeline to cool. the end that, you know, nobody will have time for, for interpretation once that's done. <laughs> it's, it's too much work. Well, well, I, I'm a strong believer that um, it doesn't matter really so much how you work, how much work you put in. What really matters is how much value you gener generate for your stakeholders. And yeah. I think interpretability and stuff like this, visualizing wh what happens when and where are the boundaries, that's where a lot of value is generated. And I see that again and again, that people kind of stop, you know, when the job is really half done, uh, communicating things like that, understand, making sure that everybody understands everything is, is part of the job and not just get the model to converge. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Serge. We had an awesome time uh, talking about interpretability, explainability, uh, glass, white, black box <laughs> things, um, uh, what we can do and all these kind of different things, what, you know, how we, um, what are um, model agnostic tools we can use to, to uh, interpret our data and things like that. Um, if you haven't read the book, yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, thanks so much for, for being in the show and um, looking forward uh, for the second edition of your book. And I uh, can't wait to, to uh, see that promoted. Yeah, yeah. Coming out in November. <laughs> thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye.